The following message features Craig Cabanis and was recorded at the first main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God UK 2014 conference. It's entitled Faithful to Receive. Craig is the senior pastor of Grace Church in Frisco, Texas. Well, Bob, thank you for inviting me, and uh, thank you for inviting me, of all places, to Bath. He set a really high standard the way he pronounced that, Bath, because in Texas it would be a two-syllable word. It would be bath, and uh, you all come to bath, but um, Bath, so I will try to... I didn't know being from Texas if I would need a translator uh, for, uh, for you to understand me, but um, nonetheless, it is great to be here. And I've enjoyed my time, which has been brief, uh, but I've enjoyed my time uh, here uh, in Bath, and I've enjoyed just walking around and talking to people, and what a wonderful spirit the folks have in this part of the world. It has just been just been delightful, and uh, thanks for your warm welcome as well. Looking forward to what God has for us in this conference. Open to John 4, if you would. Um, I am very thankful to be a part of this conference, and I'm honored to speak on this topic, sort of, uh, faithful, faithful to receive. When Bob first issued that invitation to speak on that topic to me, I, I was sort of encouraged by that and sort of curious about that. I was kind of imagining, how did Bob select people to speak? And I just sort of imagined Bob in his office there thinking about people who might um, display various characteristics. So I could see Bob thinking, you know, who do I know that is uh, faithful, who is sacrificial, who is selfless, who lays down their life for other people, who's others-oriented I'd like to ask that person to speak on uh, faithful to serve. Is that you, Nathan? Faithful to serve. So here's somebody who's selfless, caring for this faithful to serve. And then he probably thought, now who do I know that has a high esteem for the scripture, uh, who has um, exegetical skill to handle God's word faithfully, and has a, um, an oratory gift, an oratorical gift to proclaim God's word? Well, that would be Jeff Percival down here in the front. I'll ask him to speak on faithful to proclaim. Imagine Bob's thinking, who do I know who has a hunger for holiness and a passion, a passion to grow and mature in both godliness and and skills and worship leading? That'd be faithful to grow. Bob assigned himself that topic, uh, so uh, I'm the most faithful person I know in growing, so he assigned himself that topic. And then I could just imagine him faithful to receive, who do I know who has nothing to contribute? Who who do I know who brings nothing to the party, who makes no contribution whatsoever, who just has an open hand to receive? Who is that person who brings nothing of contribution? And I can imagine him searching uh, the UK and Europe and finding, saying, we can find no one who contributes less than my friend from the US, Craig. So we'll put him on a plane and bring him over because he makes no contribution, but he can receive. And... uh, so I bring my gift of receiving and uh, hope, uh, hope that you will uh, learn from it. I am thankful for this topic, though, all kidding aside, the, the, the idea of starting the conference um, on the theme of receiving uh, from the Lord and of, of posturing ourselves appropriately as those who receive is, uh, is, is certainly appropriate, and I trust it'll, the Lord will help us here set the, set the tone for the rest of the conference as those who have come to receive from him. So would you pray, for, pray with me? Pray for me too. Would you pray with me as we begin? God, we thank you for all that you have done for us, all that you have provided for us in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have taken care of our greatest need. You have made a way where there was no way for us. When we were in utter darkness, you came and you've shown a glorious light, the light of Christ. When we were dead in our transgressions and sin, you made us alive in Christ. When we were confused and disoriented, you showed us the truth. You are the truth. And so we thank you for what you have done for us. And we pray that as we look at your word tonight, that you would speak to us clearly We pray that in a penetrating way you would address every heart here. Lord, you know every person and every need, every burden that everyone brings into this room tonight, every fear, every anxious thought. 
Um, you know them all, and we just ask you tonight to speak to each here tonight in, in a very personal and uh, tender way as you do, Lord. We pray that you would encourage us through your word. We pray that we would hear from you directly through your word tonight. Speak to us we are listening, and give us grace to be hearers and doers of your word to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you a story to kind of set the stage here before we read from John 4. Um, many years ago, uh, when I was in seminary, I was a poor seminary student. Uh, I was going to, going to school full time, and, and uh, my wife and I did not have a lot of money, but I had a friend who I had gone to university with, and we graduated at the same time, and he went on and got a lucrative job, and I went on for further studies, so I was poor, and he had a lot of money. So when we would get together uh, to go to dinner, he would always insist on paying the bill uh, when we would be at a restaurant. And so uh, I remember, I, you know, being a Christian, you always, you do that thing where you fight over the bill when it comes at the restaurant, who's going to pay it? No, I get it. No, I got it. I insist. I'll pay. Do you guys do that? Yes. No. Someone said no. <laughs> well, you're faithful to receive. That's great. <laughs> uh, you do that, right? As a Christian, you want to pay and the other person wants to pay. You're just being gracious. And so I, even though I didn't have money, I would insist on paying and he would. And he would always grab the check and, and say things that would force me to allow him to, to pay. So he would say things like the obvious, hey, look, I've got a job. I have money. You, you, you are a student. You don't have money. Let me pay. Well, that was reasonable. Uh, and then we'd go again and I would try to grab the check. And I remember him telling me one time, hey, give me the check. Don't steal my blessing. I was like, whoa, he's accusing me of being a thief. He's going to be blessed by paying the bill. And so I, I don't want to steal. That's against the commandments. And so I let him buy the meal. And uh, I remember another time we were going after this. And I was really wanting, hey, let me pay. Let me do my part here in the friendship. I can, I can cover a meal. And I remember one time going for the bill and him grabbing it. And this time just looking me in the eye with, with a rebuke and saying to me, Craig, if you can't receive a gift, you can't even be a Christian. You can't even be a Christian if you can't receive a gift. I just wanted to pay for a hamburger, and he is calling into question the authenticity of my regeneration over just buying a meal. And though he was sort of joking with me, he was making a profound point, wasn't he? Because that is true. You cannot even be a Christian if you can't receive a gift. He was articulating the fundamental identity of a Christian. That is the very DNA of a Christian, one who has received a gift. A Christian is one who has received. A Christian is not someone who for their sins has paid the bill. A Christian is not someone who pays half of the bill, splits the bill, each paying their part, God doing his part to make us savable, and us doing our part to be saved. No, he saves us completely. He pays the entire bill. He doesn't need our cooperative effort to give us new life, to regenerate us. That's something he does for us. We can't pay our own bill. A Christian is one who has received eternal life through the death and resurrection of Christ. Christianity is a religion that's uniquely characterized by the notion that its adherents are those who have received from God. We don't offer a sacrifice to make ourselves right with God. God offered a sacrifice to make us right with God. We, we are not ones who somehow behave and keep a moral code to justify ourselves before God. Jesus kept the moral code, the law for us. You see, he has done it all. Christians are those who receive. We could say it this way. Christian equals recipient. We are those who have received. That's what grace is all about. That is what grace is all about. As we gather, as you gather in your home churches on a Sunday to worship the Lord, you gather first and foremost as recipients. Before you gather with any other uh, characteristic true about you, you gather as those who have received. 
And in an environment like this where we have come to learn about serving God's people in corporate worship, it's easy to focus on our role as doers. We're going to learn a lot in the next few days about things we can do, things that God is calling us to do. And it can be easy to focus on that. But I think it's important that we first of all focus on our position as receivers. So before you fill your notes, your, your, your notepad with notes from the seminars, before you write down, this is what I want to do when I get home, something you learn, before you take your notes from the main sessions and incorporate them into your life and your corporate worship back home, let's begin by considering our calling to receive, for that is the basis of our worship. And to do so, I want to look at a familiar narrative tonight. It's the story of the woman from Samaria in John 4. And it's a story where Jesus approaches this woman who's an utter outsider, and he startles her with an amazing grace. It's a story of the father pursuing someone who is outside. The father pursuing someone through Christ to shower grace upon her, to reach her and it, in, indeed her entire town with the good news of Christ. So I, I mainly want to focus on verses 16 through 26, but let's read 1 through 15, and I'll make a few comments there so that we sort of get the background. So first of all, verses 1 through 15, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So we encounter Jesus alone here. His disciples have gone into town. He's He's traveling from Judea to Galilee, and interestingly, verse 4 said that he had to pass through Samaria. Well, he didn't actually have to geographically pass through Samaria. He could have gone around Samaria. A strict Jew would go around Samaria rather than traveling through. The people of Samaria, the area of Samaria, was viewed unclean, and so as not to contaminate oneself by the Samaritans, it would be typical for a strict Jew to, to tra travel around Samaria, but Jesus has to go through Samaria. He is on a divine mission. He has a divine mandate from his father. You see, the father is seeking people in Samaria, and so Jesus has to. It's a, it's a divine imperative for him to go through this unclean area on a rescue mission. And it's the middle of the day, it's, it's hot, and he sits down at this well and begins to engage with a woman at the well. And she is immediately caught off guard. She's surprised that he requests a drink of her. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, 
a woman of Samaria. And then John explains to us, parenthetically, in that verse, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. They, they, the Samaritans were a sort of a half-breed, a people that were sort of half-Jew, half-Gentile. And the Jews didn't, uh, didn't want to have anything to do with them. They looked down upon them. And uh, there were a number of barriers that existed between them. And this lady begins to point these out immediately. She is from Samaria, and he is a Jew. She, she catches that. There was a religious difference between them. They worshipped at different locations. The Jews, and this has become a big part of the story, the Jews obviously worshipped in Jerusalem, the Samaritans at Mount Gerizim. So there was this religious barrier. They had a different scripture. The, the Samaritans only believed the first five books of the Old Testament. So they had a limited scripture, a different location for worship. There was a, a separation from them religiously. There was also a separation of them gender-wise. It wouldn't be typical for a Jewish man to engage in conversation um, alone with a woman, as Jesus is doing here. So she points out, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, not just a Samaritan, but a woman of Samaria? So he, he is breaking through a gender barrier. He is breaking through a religious barrier to talk with this woman. He's also breaking through a, uh, a barrier of, of holiness between Clean, uh, between being clean and being unclean. He asked for a drink, and she makes the comment that you have nothing to draw water with. Now, later in the story, we find out she has a jar. She leaves her jar and runs at the, uh, later in the account. But Jesus has nothing to drink with. So the implication is that he's going to drink from her jar, which would render him unclean. And so he is willing to do that. She's surprised about that. So here is Jesus moving through barriers on a mission from the Father, having to go to Samaria to reach this woman. He's moving through religious barriers, he's moving through gender barriers, and he's risking making himself unclean by drinking from her jar because he has a heart to reach her. He is there to give her a gift. As a matter of fact, he is the gift. Verse 10. Uh, it says, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is not only moving through barriers, but he's making an offer. He's offering himself as a gift. He says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would be asking for living water. Now he is referring to eternal life. He said it would spring up in you as a well to eternal life. She thinks he's talking about moving water. And she says to him, uh, this, uh, this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Verse 11. Are you greater than our father Jacob? So this is a stagnant well. But it was good enough for our father Jacob. He was the one who actually drew water from here. So what is this living water, this running water that you speak of? She doesn't understand what he is saying to her, but he is not talking about moving, flowing water. He's talking about eternal life, water that will quench a thirst that she's not even aware of, a deep spiritual thirst, so that she wouldn't have to return here again. Jesus is wanting to meet her, to give her eternal life so that, that the, the thirst of her soul is quenched, so that she encounters God Almighty. He's not talking about getting a jar full of water. He's talking about a spiritual water for her thirst. Look what happens next, verses 16 through 26. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. So He begins by breaking barriers to engage with this woman. He then speaks of this salvation, this eternal life, this living water which he offers, which he himself is a gift. And then in this section, he begins to expose her heart to show her her need, lovingly expose her heart to show her her need for him. He reveals that he knows that she's had five husbands and that she's living with a man that she is not married to. He, he uncovers her guilt he uncovers her shame, and her heart is exposed. She, she's a broken woman. Some speculate that she's gathering water, drawing water in the middle of the day. It would have been more common to draw at the beginning of the day or the end of the day because perhaps she's an outcast, uh, and she is socially not accepted, and so she is here in the middle of the day drawing. Her, her life has been one collapsed relationship after another. She's a woman who knows rejection, and yet Jesus isn't rejecting her. He's the gift of God to her. And so she's stunned by this revelation. He's a Jew. He's not from the town. How would he know the history of her broken relationships? How would she, he know about her past marriages? How would he know about her current cohabitation? How, how would he know this? Well, he must be a prophet. And that's what she says, sir, I, I perceive you are a prophet. This is not just some traveler at the well. This is someone who knows things that he could not know. He must be a prophet. And with her heart laid bare and her character di- disclosed before Christ, she immediately shifts the subject to the subject of worship. And she wants to talk about this debated topic about where does worship actually take place? Which temple is the temple for God's worship? She says, our fathers say it's Mount Gerizim. Now, they were probably in sight of Mount Gerizim right there at Jacob's well. Is it Mount Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? Which is it? Now, she moves very quickly from her immorality to the topic of worship wars. Why is that? Some have thought, well, this must be a diversionary tactic to sort of get the, get the light off of her, to, to get the, the heat, we could say, get the heat off of her and move on to another topic, a safer topic for discussion. Maybe she's trying to cover up her sins. But I don't believe that's what's actually happening. I think she's sincerely interested. If you follow the story on through, she's converted. She is leaning in. There is an interest here. She's not resisting Jesus at this point. She is beginning to lean in. And so she's asking the prophet. She's encountered a prophet who speaks things from God. And so she's asking this man who must know where is the right place for worship. Where do people encounter God? Where is atonement for sin made? She has met a prophet. Perhaps now she's looking for a priest as her own sins have been revealed. And Jesus communicates to her in verse 21 that it is not a location, Jerusalem or Gerasim. Verse 21, Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. He's telling her everything is changing. Everything is changing. It's not about where you worship. It's about whom. 
It's not about this mountain or that mountain. The hour is coming when you won't worship the Father in either place. She is asking about where our fathers worshiped, and he is talking about worshiping the Father. He is revealing the Father to her. And he says the hour is coming, and it is now here. In John's Gospel, Jesus frequently refers to the hour. It's oftentimes referring to his death, the hour of his death, or in this case, the hour of his coming. It's it's hour that's coming, his death, his crucifixion, and it's already here. He has come, God in the flesh. So he's telling her, the hour is now where worship is not tied to location, it's tied to the person of Jesus, and worship is to be brought to him in spirit, through him to the Father, in spirit, in and truth. The hour is coming when he will give his life, where he will be the sacrifice, where he will give his life for those who would believe in him would experience eternal life. And the Father has sent him. The Father has sent him because the Father is seeking after people to worship him. He has come to seek her. He has broken barriers to get to her. He has offered himself as a gift to draw her. He has revealed her own sinfulness and shown her her need for a Savior. And now he is explaining to her that the Father is seeking worshipers, and she she is a case in point. She has had her world turned upside down in this conversation. She wanted to know where people should go to seek God, over here or over there. And he says, it's the Father who's seeking. She's wondering about which mountain to seek God, and he's saying the Father is seeking worshipers. And so she just sort of closes by saying, well, fair enough, but when the Messiah comes, he's going to sort all of this out. And, And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. He reveals himself as the Messiah to her. What a beautiful account of God reaching an outsider and then a city of outsiders because she goes and tells her whole town and they come to meet with Jesus and spend a couple of days with him. It's in the midst of a, it's a harvest narrative. It's a, it's a story of God going to the Samaritans to redeem people from Samaria for himself. It's a harvest narrative, but in the middle of it is this curious exchange about worship. Worship moving from where to whom. And he redirects her perspective about worship through both his pursuit of her and his explanation to her. Jesus gives us a baseline for understanding worship. Now, Worship, the word worship can be used in a number of different ways. We worship is a way of life, a life lived for the glory of God, and a subset of that broad life of worship is corporate worship, uh, which she introduces. She's talking, she's asking specifically about location for worship. She introduces the topic into the conversation. But what we learn about worship from this passage is that worship results from something God does, not something we do. Do you see that? God is seeking worshipers, and in a very tangible way, Jesus is going after this woman to make her a worshiper, and then she responds to all that she hears from him. Worship results from something God does, not something we do. Worship originates with the Father seeking us, not our seeking Him. Not our seeking Him. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Now, a lot of ink is spilled on defining what does spirit and truth mean? And that's that's an important question. Uh, Jesus is the truth. Truth incarnate is standing there uh, before her. Uh, God has come to her and revealed himself to her. And we worship empowered by the Spirit, certainly the Holy Spirit. But I think here it's probably talking about worship from the heart, the Spirit, from the person 
worshiping Jesus who is the truth. This is about ultimately about worship through Christ. He has come and John has revealed that Jesus is the new temple in chapter 2. He's Uh, He's told the Jews that if they tear down the temple, they could destroy the temple, and he'll build it back in three days. And they say, it took 46 years to build this temple. How could you possibly do that? John tells us he was talking about the temple, which is his body. Jesus is the new temple. In chapter 1, John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the temple. He is the truth. He is the way that we come to God the Father through, through Him. So certainly the passage is talking about that. But there is, a, there is an underlying truth be, be, that's below this idea of worshiping in spirit and truth. And it is this, that the Father is seeking worshipers. Before we speak of our worship or her worship in spirit and truth, there is the underlining reality that it is God who is seeking true worshipers. And it is his pursuit of us that creates worship. Worship is our response to his pursuit. Here is kind of the theological idea I'm trying to pull out of here. The the big idea that I think is relevant to worship from this passage. True worship emerges from the Father's pursuit of us and not our pursuit of Him. True worship emerges from the Father's pursuit of us and not our pursuit of Him. Worship begins with our receiving. That's her story. What is she doing to earn anything from God? What is she doing to worship God She's a woman with a threadbare soul, a woman who's experienced repeated rejection, a woman who's out gathering, drawing water, and Jesus is pursuing her. It's it's our receiving, not our giving. We are recipients and beneficiaries in the first place, not suppliers of worship or providers of worship. Our first duty as worshipers is to understand what we have received from him, and to position ourselves as receivers. The Samaritan woman's story is your story and my story as well. Our circumstances may differ. Our background may be very different from hers. But we were all outsiders. We were all undeserving. Every one of us was least likely to know Jesus And he came to us. She could have never broken through these barriers to God. She could have never addressed a Jew. She could have never addressed a male Jew. She could have never risked making Jesus unclean. But he came through all of that to her. And that's what he did for you as well. He came and he rescued you. He made a way when there was no way for you. When you were blind, he opened your eyes. When you were dead, he gave you life. When you had no spiritual life towards him at all, he granted you new birth, the Bible says. And so our worship to him is based from that position that he sought us and we respond to him. We were all outsiders far from God, but we have been sought out by the Savior. We were sinful, barren, needy, And yet the Father loved us and pursued us and saved us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He has provided. He has pursued. We have received. And that is still a fundamental identity of a Christian, recipient of grace. Grace, by its very nature, means he gives and we receive. And it's so clear of her story but it's true for us as well. It is a story about pursuing worship, but it's God who's doing the pursuing in this story. The woman's merely responding, and that's what we do as well. She she does respond in the passage. She She drops her jar, verse 28. The woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. 
Um, she's giving a testimony, but it's a, it's a, it's a statement of worship before the Lord. This is what Jesus did for me. She's declaring the worth of the Savior. She's announcing praise to Christ. And others are being affected. I believe this has profound implications for us as worshipers. I think it has profound implications for us who lead in any way in worship. Because it is vital that we are far more aware of the Father's loving provision for us in Jesus than we are aware of our pursuit of him. It's his pursuit of us through the Spirit that we are aware of and leads us to respond to him. It'll, it'll shape, it shapes our approach to gathered worship, to corporate worship together. Let, let me offer a couple of practical applications from this passage. I'm going to talk, a, talk about worship here, and, and, and this applies both to worship as, as a life lived for the Lord, but specifically since this conference is about our gathered worship, our corporate worship, I'm going to make some application uh, in that way. Two very simple thoughts that stem from this idea that worship emerges from the Father's pursuit of us and not our pursuit of Him. As we lead in worship and as we serve others in facilitating corporate worship, we should focus on receiving and will magnify grace. Focus on receiving and you will magnify grace. If we bring our recipient status into focus, what will happen for our people is that the grace of God will take on a broader, will be broader in our understanding. If you want your gathering, your worship gathering, to give off the aroma of grace, focus on receiving from God. You know, um, if you're going to someone's house, everyone's house, their home, has a certain aroma that, that they don't detect, but you detect when you, when you go in. Have, have you noticed that before? I'm, I'm noticing being in another country, in my hotel, there is an aroma in my room that's new to me. It's not bad. It's not like the previous person who stayed there. It, no, it's not bad. It's, uh, it's good, but it's different. I walked in the room and go, I've never smelled this, this smell before. It's the aroma of Bath, I guess. Uh, <laughs> But everyone, when you go into someone's house, it has a smell. Not like they fried fish the night before. I don't mean that. I just mean like they're living who they are. There's just an aroma. And the people of God have that as well. When people come into our gathering, there is an aroma in our, in our worship. There's an aroma. And when we elevate the person of Christ, when we celebrate what he has done for us, when our focus is not what we're doing for him, But when our focus is what he has done for us and how he has lavished grace on us, how he has pursued us in our waywardness and in our darkness, how he reached out to us when it was impossible for us to reach to him because we were completely unwilling and incapable of doing so, when the work of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, when that is highlighted, his work among our people, then the grace of God is magnified and the aroma in the room The spiritual aroma is the aroma of grace, the aroma of Christ. When we focus on our receiving, we magnify grace. The Samaritan woman cannot contain her astonishment. When she encounters Jesus, she drops the jar, as we read, and she runs into town telling anyone who will listen who she's met and what what he's done for her. She is responding to the work of God. She is passionate. She is declaring. She is aware. She's not running and telling everyone what she's doing for him. She's not, she's not self-conscious at all. I'm here being a witness for him. No, she's just telling. It's just normal. It's just an overflow of someone who is astonished by the mercy of God. How, this is incredible that God would reach to me. Someone who who those in the town likely keep their distance from, and yet God has selected her out of everyone in the town to reveal himself. She's overjoyed. She's grateful. She's awestruck. She's responding with declarations of who he is and what he's done. There's a sense of wonder. There's a sense of awe. It's like it just happened because it did just happen, but it's fresh in her heart. 
And I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to sort of slide into a, to a rut where there's not that sort of fresh awareness that I've encountered God, that Jesus sought, the Father sought me, an undeserving enemy, and saved me. That even while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Even when I was dead in transgression and sin, he made me alive together with Christ. It's easy to lose the wonder. We forget how real he is, what he's actually done for us. And there's, there's a diminished awe, a familiarity that can slip into complacency, even apathy, where even those who are on a stage or a platform, in, I'm not speaking of these people here tonight, but it's figurative, even those who are in front of us leading can have this going on in our hearts, a certain familiarity, a certain distance where we've, we've lost the wonder of what he's done. And to go back and to find ourself in her story is a very healthy exercise to realize where would we be had he not come and pursued us. Sometimes we just say words and sing words and they don't have their awe the awe that should be inspired in our hearts. And God wants to wake us up, I believe. I had a wake-up call in, our, in a worship service this last Easter. And uh, we have two services. It was the end of the second service. A lot had happened all week. Had a good Friday service. And uh, so by the end of the second service uh, on Easter Sunday, I'm pretty, pretty tired. And my heart's into it, I'm preaching, but I'd be less than honest if I told you that I had the same enthusiasm I did on Good Friday or that I did in the first service. I was saying the words, but, but I, was, I was running out of uh, gas, out of steam. And uh, so I was making a point from 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, the idea behind the sermon was because he was resurrected, we will too one day be resurrected as believers. It was tying our future hope to his resurrection out of 1 Corinthians 15. And so there were many guests there, people who did not know Christ. And so I was trying to make an application to wake them up so that they wouldn't be slumbering uh, and wouldn't be asleep and wouldn't miss the urgency of the message. And I was doing everything I could to engage because, as I said, I was fatigued mentally and physically. And I just make a, made a statement uh, from the passage. I said, now, I, many of you here today, I don't know you. I don't know your story. I don't know your background, but I know this about you. You will die. Just to make a strong point to wait, where are you with Christ? You will die. And it wasn't that very second that my finger went out into the congregation like that. It wasn't that very second, but it was just a couple of moments later. It had not passed the idea where a guy in front of me, about four rows down, stands up. This is the end of the sermon, Easter Sunday, leans over him, and there's a guy who's passed out in front of him, and he starts moving chairs to get to this guy who is laying on the floor with chest pains, with pain shooting through his arm. And so I stopped, I ran down, people started gathering around. Someone yelled, call for us, it's 911. I think for you, maybe it's 999, emergency. Someone called emergency. And, and I went to this guy, and he's like looking up, glazed eyes, and he's just saying, Jesus. And I'm thinking, he's, he's obviously having a heart attack. I'm thinking he's literally dying, and he's seeing the Lord. And he's like, Jesus. People are gathering around, praying. I kind of got back up, turned the mic on, dismissed everyone. Have a great Easter. And this guy is on the ground. What do you do? This guy is on the ground. Uh, I never had training for this. I never had the class on what to do when someone's having a heart attack on Easter Sunday at the end of the sermon. And so the ambulance come. They put him in. I, I followed the ambulance. Get to the hotel. Get uh, Hotel. The hospital. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, speaking, I'm tired just like I was then. I got to the hospital. went to the hotel. He wasn't there. I got to the hospital. I walked in the hospital room, and he's coherent, much more coherent. He said, wow, I really didn't want to be a sermon illustration. Uh, you know, it's like I didn't want to be the guy for, for every year. I said, you will die, and he did. <laughs> so he's like, I, I want to be a hearer and a doer, but not that kind is what he told me. So he had a good sense of humor about it. Stayed in the hospital three days. They never found out why this happened. It was all the symptoms of a heart attack, but it wasn't. 
They do not know what happened to him. But that was a Sunday where everyone in the room was aware of God like we had not been. Every, we, we were preaching. We're talking about, yeah, the Bible says we're going to die and then Jesus is going to come back. When someone falls over and you think they're dying in the room, there's an awareness. This is real. There's nothing more real than what's going on right now. What we're talking about right here, the reality that God has sought us and that worship flows from that truth that he speaks, we respond. He saves, we respond with gratitude and thanks and a life of worship. That reality dawned on us. And it was one of those moments where in a meeting, I was awestruck at the power of God. As we prepare and as we plan for corporate worship, we should think, I believe, first of all, about God acting upon us, about our receiving in the gospel and not our responding in the first place. That will magnify grace. That will cultivate awe in our own hearts so that we may lead others in the same way. Before we consider what's the theme of the worship gathering, before we start selecting songs, before we start planning arrangements, before we work on musical transitions, before we write exhortations, before we select scriptures to read in the worship service, before we prepare to lead in prayer, before we write a sermon, we should personally interact with the Father and contemplate what He has done for us in Christ, lest we go through the motions without a living, vibrant awareness of what he's done for us. I read this quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's wonderful to be able to give a Spurgeon quote in the land of Spurgeon. Thanks for giving us Spurgeon. We gave you McDonald's. Uh, That's what America is. So we got the better end of that deal for sure. Uh, We haven't contributed much, but you contributed Spurgeon. This is what Spurgeon said about this being aware of how God was at the bottom of his salvation and how it affected him. He says, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. One weeknight when I was sitting in the house of God, the thought struck me. How did you become a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? Well, I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them. But what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. That was her experience. That's what God revealed to Charles Spurgeon, and that's our experience as well in Christ. We have received from him. We have received, and that is our primary identity. Your primary identity is not worship leader. It's not singer. It's not musician. It's not tech person. It's not pastor. It's receiver recipient of grace. May we be those whose hearts overflow with that grace for what we have received. Focus on receiving and you'll magnify grace. Focus on what he has done and you will magnify grace. Here's the second and final simple application. Focus on receiving and you'll respond faithfully, or at least you may. Focus on receiving and you'll respond faithfully. Our understanding of what Christ has done for us prepares us to respond to the truth of the gospel from the heart, worshiping in spirit and truth, responding to Jesus, the truth, from our heart. Our job is to receive. If you focus on receiving, you'll respond more faithfully. Our job is to, in the first place, receive, 
And when it comes to worship and gathered worship in particular, we are recipients. We are not creators of worship. We're not producers of worship. We're responding to grace. We're responding to what God has done. We do not originate worship. We respond to what we have received in Christ. There's a big difference in responding and creating. Worship emerges from the Father seeking us, not our seeking Him. And we don't create worship. We respond to God in worship. He speaks. He acts. We respond. And so that takes a lot of pressure off. As, as a worship leader, you're not called to create worship. You're called to respond to the Father in Christ. You're not a worship creator. He has pursued you, and you're a worship responder. You're not called to be a worship creator. You're not called to be a worship designer, a worship innovator. You're not a worship architect, a worship producer, a worship entrepreneur, a worship engineer, a worship visionary, a worship pioneer. You're called to be a faithful receiver of the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ and respond to him in faith, in spirit, and in truth. We don't create, we respond. We are those the Father is seeking. We don't originate worship, therefore, we shouldn't seek to be original in worship. You don't get bonus points for originality in worship. Dudes get killed in the Bible for that. Killed for originality in worship. We're called to be faithful receivers and responders, not creators. Now, I didn't say we're never to be creative in our expression of worship. I'm not advocating something that is stale or lifeless. You, you'll see that the whole conference starting tonight. It wasn't stale or li- lifeless. It didn't lack creative expression. It didn't lack beauty. I'm not talking about anything like that. But we need to be clear that freshness in worship is not driven by human creativity. A fresh worship experience is not because I did something creative. It's because my mind has become freshly aware of a truth about Jesus or newly aware of a truth about Jesus. And my heart responds freshly to what I know to be true of him through the scripture. Fresh worship comes from seeing Christ and responding to him, being aware of what he's done for us. It's in my receiving from him. It's in my posturing myself, not as creator, not as originator of fresh experience and encounter, but recipient of grace that he is magnified and I can respond faithfully in spirit and truth to him. That's where the freshness in a worship experience comes. It comes from the truth of Christ and not from something I did that is new. You see, leading worship is a stewardship, and so we must be concerned about faithfulness. That's why I love the theme of the conference that that Bob's done here, faithful. I love it because a steward, leading worship is a stewardship, and a steward is someone who cares for something that's been entrusted to him or to her by another. We don't own worship. We don't create worship. We don't make worship. We steward corporate worship worship. It's God's thing. It's not ours. It's about his activity, not ours. It's also about people being deeply impressed by him and not us. And so when we are very aware of what we've received, we'll be faithful. At least we'll be, we'll be set up to be faithful in our response, to make much of him so that people are impressed by what he's done and what we've received from him. In this story, and I understand it was an evangelistic testimony, but it's hard to differentiate proclaimed, the proclaimed worth of Christ, whether it's an an act of worship or an act of testimony. I, I think she's doing both. But it's interesting, many of the Samaritans in the town believed because of the woman's testimony. What was the testimony that she gave? What was the proclamation that she made? Come and see a man who told me all I ever did, can he be the Christ? That's what we gather to do. Come and hear about the man who gave his life for us. Come and hear about the Father who sought us, the outsiders, the rebels, those who were dead 
in sin and gave us life and forgave us and welcomed us home. Let's hear about him. Let's declare what we've received in him. And then we will be much more likely to be faithful in our response to worship in spirit and truth. We are responding to what he has done. We're responding to what he is doing. We're responding to what he will do. God is already at work. I I just thought about this. I was feeling earlier today a bit anxious uh, because I didn't know. Yesterday I felt absolutely terrible. I don't don't travel all over the world that much, and so the whole jet lag thing, I didn't know who I was yesterday. I didn't know my name. Had to ask at the front desk of the hotel, but I just was... Not really. But uh, I was, so today I was thinking, man, I hope I'm clear-headed up there. I hope that I'm not uh, just completely stumbling. And uh, then I just had this thought. God brought everyone here. If I can just preach from the Word, God brought everyone here. He knows everyone's need. He's already at work. We didn't gather here so that Bob started a work by leading us in song and that I would start off the conference by a message on faithful to receive. I just began to think, God's doing a thousand things already in lives all over this room. He is already at work. We're just responding to this. Think about this. When you gather as your church and, and you seek him, you're only seeking him because he already sought you. He chose you. Ephesians 1 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When you gather on Sunday morning, before you ever pray a prayer in your gathering, Jesus is already interceding. There is no opening prayer, technically. Jesus is living to make intercession for us. Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's making intercession before you even show up. Before we ever sing a note, when you get there on Sunday morning, before you sing one note, God is already singing over you. That's what the text of Scripture says. Before we ever sing a note, the Lord your God is in your midst. He will exult over you with loud singing, Zephaniah 3.17. He's not only singing, he's singing loudly over you. When we gather We've already been chosen. He's already called us. He's already, or he's already praying. He's already singing over us. Before we ever welcome anyone, we've already been welcomed by him. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We come in, and before we welcome anyone, he's welcomed us home. And we can freely welcome others. We can freely pray knowing that Jesus makes intercession for us. We can freely sing, know that our God sings over us as well. True worshipers are receivers and responders. What's a true worshiper? A receiver and a responder. So if you lead the music in your church, maybe you're called a lead worshiper or a worship leader or something like that, that makes you the lead receiver and the first responder. That's what you are. Lead receiver, I'm here to proclaim what he has done and we've received from him. You're leading in that, and you're the first responder, leading everyone else to respond to God. That's your first task, to receive and to help the congregation receive and to lead in responding to what God has done and is doing. When we are faithful to receive, we will magnify grace and respond faithfully in spirit and truth. And ultimately, we'll encounter God. We will encounter God. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that what he wants? The Father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. Isn't that why we are here? When the Father seeks and finds worshipers who receive and respond in spirit and truth, he is delighted to reveal himself more to those worshipers so that we receive more and respond more. And that is why we were created. And I pray that that heart, that vision, that attitude will will be with us as we navigate this conference together. That in each of the sessions, in each of the seminars, in each of the times of singing, in each of the times of having fellowship together, casual conversation, in, in all of it, that we'd be those amazed that God has come to us 
and realize that true worship emerges out of the Father seeking me, the Father's pursuit of me, and not my pursuit of Him. I'm just responding to what He has done. There will be plenty to respond to in the conference, for sure, but let's ensure that our response is ultimately as those who have received. He is at work in our lives. And may these next few days be a time to step back, to push the pause button, step back and consider who He is and what He's done for each of us in our lives so that we may respond and magnify His grace and respond faithfully in spirit and truth to the God who has sought us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message by Craig Cabanis entitled, Faithful to Receive. It was given at the first main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries' Worship God UK 2014 conference. For other messages and more information on Sovereign Grace Ministries, please visit our website at www.sovgracemin.org. That's www.sovgracemin.org.